Let me direct your attention today to Luke chapter 8. Uh, we're going to look at a passage that is typically called the parable of the sower. Uh, and I understand that, and I'm not going to, you know, mount a big uh, case against that. But I think a better way to talk about this passage is the parable of the four soils is really the important thing about this and probably a better way to refer to it because it's not so much about the sower and the seed as the soils and their response to the seed that are sown. The, the soils represent four responses to the seed that's sown. And the seed in this passage, as we will see, is the Word of God. Now, I've selected it uh, because it seemed to me to be kind of a natural fit uh, to the sermon I presented last week from Hebrews 10, verse 23, where the writer to the Hebrews exhorted the Hebrews, these people that were, we'll call them Messianic Jews, to hold fast to Christ and the word of the gospel and not fade away in the light of a renewed persecution that was coming upon them. Interestingly, the last verse that I'm going to read, verse 15, it says, hold it fast, this word that's preached, hold it fast. So there's that linguistic connection, and I think there's the thematic connection uh, um, in this as well. Uh, as I said, I think it's a kind of a natural uh, fit following that sermon. So let's pray and ask God to help us understand. We'll read uh, Luke uh, 8, 4 to 15. Uh, there are parallel parallels to this in Matthew and Mark's gospel. I'm going to refer to a little of the phraseology that's in some of the other accounts uh, at a point or two. Um, but uh, anyway, let's pray and read Luke's account. Lord God, um, this word, your word, was written by holy men who were carried along, moved along by the Holy Spirit. It was uh, inspired by the Spirit, breathed out by the Spirit through human instruments. We ask now that you will give us that same Spirit to illuminate these words to our understanding and apply them to our hearts and help us to see where the shoe fits in our lives. And Father, I pray that you'll use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the parable of the sower, the parable of the four soils, however you want to refer to it. Luke 8 at verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. When the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade. This is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. So a big picture question at the, at the start is, why did Jesus teach this parable at this point in his ministry? And I think a significant part of that is at the very beginning of verse 4. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him. Huh. What's going on? Jesus has been doing miracles. He has now what we might call an overheated following or popularity because of the miracle. And he loves these people and wants them to be sure that they are not just following because of the miracles, but that they're following for the right reasons. Interestingly, in another place in Luke's gospel, it says this, very similar Great, now great crowds accompanied him. So he's got a following. He could, you know, start the t-shirt ministry and, and, and start the blog and the whole thing. He could, he could rise in a wave of popularity if he'll just open the right YouTube channel and everything, you know. Great crowds accompanied him, just like in this text in, in, in chapter 8. And he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. <laughs> you remember the old Marine Corps recruiting slogan from many years ago said the Marines are looking for a few good men. Well, it's in, the, in that spirit that Jesus turns to this crowd and says, Look, 
It's deeper than following a miracle worker. And I think that's one of the main reasons he does that at this point. How will these people not respond just to his miracles, but to his message? Indeed, the question for me is, how do I respond to his message? The question for you is, how do I respond? How do you respond to his message, the word of the gospel, the word of the scriptures? And this parable is to help us think through all of that. So some details, and then we'll look at the four soils. The seed is the word of God. What is the word of God? Well, it's God's revelation. God's revelation of what? Well, primarily, the, the, the Bible is the revelation of God himself. He reveals himself and his kingdom and the good news and the Christ and redemption and coming judgment and eternal life. All the four soils in this passage had the word Preach to them. The same seed fell on each soil. So these may well represent church people. Today, people that have heard the revelation of God about himself and his kingdom and his Christ. The application is to us, those who've heard the word of God. Who sows the seed? Well, Jesus is obviously the sower in this passage, but it's the apostles and the prophets and the church, his followers. We're we're exhorted to go and preach and teach the word. What is fruit uh, or the crop he's looking for? Uh, At the end in, in the passage in verse 15, they bear fruit with patience. Well, the fruit, I think, is... Clearly the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, it's that. I think it's evangelistic fruit. Uh, You can look in John 15 uh, and get a little more uh, texture on that concept. But the fruit is what God desires in us in ongoing transformation and what God desires through us as we seek to impact and minister to others. And so the the main issue for us today is what's my response to the Word of God? What's my response to the gospel? What's my response to Jesus? What's the condition of my heart as I hear the Word of God? Because these four souls really represent four hearts, as we shall see. Well, let's look at them, okay? The first one. Um, Verse 12 Well, in verse 12, and then when he first gives it up in verse 5, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And then down at verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. See, it's about hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. So the soil is hard packed. If you've ever been uh, hiking out through a field or uh, in the woods, uh, if you're on a path that's well used, you know it might be hollowed out just a little bit, and, and it might be green if you're out in the field, but the path 
will not be green. The path will not have anything growing on it. Uh, the path will have been beaten out, we say, and nothing grows on a worn, worn path. And the seeds fall, but only on the surface of the soil, and then they're eaten by the birds. So what's the analysis down in the bottom of the passage? Well, this is a hard soil, a crusty soil, an impenetrable soil. It's a soil that's indifferent or uninterested. If we were to use another uh, metaphor, we might say, well, it's been water off a duck's back. It just didn't sink in, right? But the problem in verse 12 is identified as what? The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. It's satanic. Before it can penetrate, the devil takes away the word. Well, who is that? Well, it's people that sleep in worship services. There was a man in my church in Alabama in the early days. Everybody talked about him. His name was Jimmy. I said, man, Jimmy can sleep with the best of them in worship, can he? And I said, well, he does rest his eyelids. He really does, you know. <laughs> but they're not just people that are physically asleep. They're people that are spiritually asleep. Their bodies are awake, but they're really asleep. Their souls are asleep. And the Word of God does not penetrate and implant and impact the life of that person. And the outcome is no faith, no salvation, no fruit. What are the remedies to this? Can you fix it? Well, let me mention a couple of things. First of all, you've got to realize that Satan always, put the word always in capital letters, Satan always opposes God's word because God's word is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Satan always opposes the word of God. Go back to the Garden of Eden. God said one thing. Satan misquoted God. He's opposing the Word of God. He said, did God say this? No, He didn't say that. He said this. Oh, yeah, well, no, He didn't. And He does that today in public worship, in private worship, in family worship. And so what's the point? There's always, listen, people talk today about spiritual warfare. The point of spiritual warfare is always when the Word of God is being proclaimed and taught. Really? When you might say to me, well, Alan, if that's true, we're at war right here, right now in this room. Yeah, we are. Well, I didn't see it. <laughs> well, you think the devil's going to come waving a flag and say, here I am, guys, don't listen to God's word. He's a guerrilla warfare agent. He's a guerrilla warfare agent. He doesn't want you to know he's here. He doesn't want you to know he opposes you. He's very dangerous for that very reason. He is a stealth opponent, we might say. So I think the first thing we've got to do is realize that the devil is active, and according to Peter, we've got to oppose him, resist him. Secondly, to overcome this problem, the, the, the pathway hearer, the packed down soil, 
is we've got to follow the admonition of the prophets. Uh, Jeremiah and also Hosea uh, have words like this. Jeremiah says this exactly, I'm, I'm quoting. Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. What is fallow ground? Break up your fallow ground. Well, fallow ground is ground that is left untilled or unsowed after plowing. It's uncultivated ground. It's ground that you might say, well, I'm going to leave it fallow so it can rest for a year. And, and ground like that, especially if it's been plowed when the former crop taken, came up or was taken, uh, it, it gets crusty. It, it gets hard. You've experienced that probably in some way at some time. And, and, and Jeremiah and Hosea are saying, plow up that ground. What's he mean? Plow up your heart. Not literally, no. Spiritually. How do you do that? You plead with God for a soft heart, a tender heart, an absorbent heart. A heart that is hungry for the Word of God. You know, taste so it's, a, it's an interesting thing. How do you make yourself hungry for the Word of God, okay? Well, I hate licorice, okay? Black licorice. I mean, if you, you could send me a ton of licorice, and in a year I'll still have a ton of licorice. I'm not going to eat the licorice. I don't like licorice, okay? And you've got things you don't like, too. Matter of fact, I used this illustration once, and I went to my office the next week, and there's some licorice on my desk. You know, it had some characters in it church in Alabama. They were funny guys. That, Anyway, so here's, here's the deal. So I'm saying I want you to have a taste for the Word of God. I want you to have a taste for Jesus Christ. I want you to have hunger for Jesus Christ. What can you do to change somebody's taste? Nothing. And that's the scary thing. I can't change your taste so if you say, well, I don't have a taste for the Word of God. I don't have a taste for Jesus. You better cry out to God because only God can change that. You may think, I can change that anytime I want to. You cannot, brother or sister. You cannot. If you're not hungry for Jesus, only God can make you hungry for Jesus. You better plead with God that He would give you a hunger for Jesus Christ and show you your, show you your desperate need for Jesus Christ. Because if you, if you in your prideful arrogance think you can do that, you won't get there. Okay? Plow up your fallow ground. Here's a third thing you can do to overcome this crusty, hard thing. is prepare for the Word. Whenever and however you will receive the Word, prepare for it. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're thinking about what happens here on Sunday, go to sleep on time Saturday night. Get plenty of rest. Be ready physically and mentally. Before you come, pray. Pray for those who will preach and teach. Pray that God would bind Satan away and keep him away. Pray for yourself and pray for your brothers and sisters and plead with God for the help of the Holy Spirit. Humble yourself and admit your need. Our teachers told us when we were in school, at least my teachers did, 
repeatedly. Pay attention, class. And interestingly, the scriptures in 2 Peter 1 and Zechariah 7 and other places exhort us, pay attention to God. Pray that you might pay attention. My mother often said, listen to me, young man. And again, the scripture writers tell us that in 2 Timothy 4 and John 18 and John 10 and Luke 10 and other places. Listen, listen. Pray that God would help you to listen. James writes, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And see, there's the key word, the implanted word. Because in this first soil, the word is never implanted. The word is never implanted. Because the devil is at work and because the heart is crusty. Okay, That's the first soil. Secondly, there's what's called the rocky ground here, or the shallow soil. Uh, maybe it's uh, you've seen plants. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you hike uh, where there's rocks ever, uh, you, uh, lots of rocks here in the west. Uh, we used to see them in smoky mountains like this. I mean, you, you see something growing among the rocks, and you think, how in the world does that thing grow there, right? Because there's just not much soil. It, it could be a thin layer of soil over rock or, 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 or just almost no soil. It looks like the roots are going down into the rock. We might experience it, you know, when, uh, when houses are built and they pour a driveway or a foundation, they never clean up very well. They just put dirt over all that rock and stuff right up by your foundation. You wonder, you know, you dig in there and you think, what in the world is down here? And you pull it up and there's old bricks down there and concrete down there. No wonder things won't grow very well right up next to the house, you know. That's the description of this soil. Well, what's the analysis that's given? Well, the analysis that's given... Um, in verse 13, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. So initially, there's joy. Uh, initially, if you're looking from the outside, there's encouragement. There appears to be. There's apparent faith. But this faith is of limited endurance. These have no root. They have no root. They don't have a good root system. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. No depth, no enduring faith. I mean, that was the problem that the writer to the Hebrews was worried about last week in chapter 10. That in time of testing, they would fall away. And so there's no fruit. Time of testing, time of trial, time of tribulation, time of persecution... Now, God has a positive purpose for trials and tribulations and persecution and testing. In James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Something very uh, similar in Romans 5, 1 and following. So what, what's Jesus saying here? Well, what he's saying here is what he says later in Luke 14. Count the cost of following Jesus before you start down the road. Well, what's the cost going to be? Well, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
It doesn't say all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will run the risk that possibly sometime they will be persecuted. It says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, all who are faithful to Jesus Christ, will in one way or another, at one time or another, be persecuted for their faith. Persecution is the pathway of the disciple. And so we're asked, that's why Jesus said in Luke 14... He who comes to follow me and does not hate his father and mother and brothers and sisters, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, I've got to be number one. He goes on. He really does talk about counting the cost in that Luke 14 passage toward the end. So do I see Jesus as worth it? Do I see Jesus as the pearl of great price, as the gospel of the kingdom, the absolutely best news that I, best news that I or anyone else could ever hear? So the remedy is, first of all, to count the cost, and then secondly, look unto Jesus for strength and encouragement. Uh, Though in the mysterious plan of God, persecution is a necessary part of spiritual formation. As a matter of fact, Peter talks about in chapter 1, verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith, right? The tested genuineness of your faith. So if you've got a $20 bill, and you wonder, is this real or counterfeit? Well, you test it. You go down to the bank. You say, hey, is this 20 real or counterfeit? But I could lose my 20 if it's counterfeit. Well, yeah. But you'd have the certainty that it's real if it passes the test. And that's the kind of thing that's going on here. But why do people fall away under persecution? Well, they want to be secure. Right? I want to be secure. You want to be secure. Nobody wants to be persecuted. We all want security. But where is there security in this world? Right? Where is security in this world? There's really only one place to be secure in this world. It's in the hands of Jesus Christ. They're in the Father's hands. Nothing can take them out of the Father's hands. You can lose your health, you can lose your wealth, you can lose your good looks. If you ever had it, you know. You can lose everything that you build your security on, but you cannot lose God if you are a child of the living God. You cannot lose He will not lose you. He will not lose you. Pretty good news. That's the reason Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that there's nothing more they can do. You mean all they can do is kill your body? That's all he can do. Your body's going to die anyway, right? Fear those, Jesus said, who can, him, rather, Jesus said, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, the rocky soil. Thirdly, there's the thorny ground soil. The, 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 the picture is pretty clear. The seed is sown. It comes up. There's good soil, but thorns come up and choke the word, and it doesn't bear fruit. What's the problem here? Well, there are a lot of ways to talk about it. I want to mention some of them. Uh, This heart is distracted by lesser things. Um, There are good, bad decisions you and I make, you know, uh, do I rob a bank or do I go to work? Easy answer to 
Easy is what the answer ought to be. I don't know what you're thinking about. Okay. That's a good, bad decision. Better, best decisions are the really hard decisions. Take this job, that job. This house, that house. Do this with my Saturday afternoon. Do that with my Saturday afternoon. Oh, yeah, those are hard. This heart um, is double-minded, to use a phrase that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's distracted by things that are listed out here um, in the Scriptures. It fell among the thorns. These are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares of the world and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. They're fruitless too. All these first three souls are fruitless. And I think, properly understood, I said, what did I say? Four souls, four this, four this, but two outcomes. The outcomes are heaven and hell. And the first three soils, no fruit, hell. The fourth soil, heaven. So this is important stuff. So this soil, the, the distracted heart is distracted by the cares of the world. Uh, that's what it says, you know. The cares of the world. The stuff I must do. That maybe the must doesn't come from God. You remember the story in Luke 10. Maybe I should read a couple of verses of it. It's not too far over here to Luke 10. And uh, Mary and Martha... They went on their way and Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So, you know, the picture is Mary sitting at Jesus' feet listening and Martha's in the kitchen freaking out, you know. And and Jesus said, well, you know, Martha, Martha came and said, tell my sister to get in the kitchen. That's the Carter translation, but that's what it means. Tell my sister to get in the kitchen. He said, she's chosen the good part. And this isn't about people that inhabit kitchens. But there are things, a friend of mine says, the world is a very captivating place. A very captivating place. These are people that are captivated by the cares of the world. And then it says riches. In in, in Matthew's translation, it says the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. How are riches deceitful? Well, the riches are deceitful, brothers and sisters, in, in that what they promise and what they deliver are not the same thing, right? What they promise and what they deliver. They promise what they can't deliver. What is that? Real life. Full, rich, abundant, joyful life. Let me ask you this. The richest people you know, are they really happy people? Deep down, are they happy? Let's take an easy target. The movie stars. Are they happy? Are they really happy? They don't exude it. Is the British royal family really happy? Doesn't it? My Distance, it doesn't look like it from what I read, you know. As the Brits might say, it's a bloody mess, you know, for crying out loud, you know. Are they happy? But see, riches are 
portrayed as they'll make, this will make you happy. If you win the lottery, you'll be happy. You make a half million dollars, a million dollars a year, you'll be happy. My pastoral experience was that there are some really wealthy people that were really unhappy, unfulfilled, unjoyful. You see, they promise that, but what do they bring? According to the Bible, it brings worry and concern. Worry and concern. Who's going to get my stuff? Have I got enough insurance? Did I list that on the schedule? Oh. And then the pleasures of life. The pleasures of life are mentioned thirdly in, in uh, Luke's account. The pleasures of life. What, what does that mean? Well, I think it is related to the first one, but I think it's what I call the long-term, short-term problem. Uh, when we look at the short term, we think certain things are absolutely essential. But what we need to consider is what is actually important in the long term. And I know some of you will think, that's a cheap preacher shot to speak this sentence I'm going to speak, but it's my job. How do you wish you will have lived when you stand before God someday? That's what I'm asking you. That's what God is asking you. How do you wish you will have lived when you stand before God? I mean, at my age, <laughs> I'm beginning to think, and what do I want to be doing when my moment comes to cross over from this side to the other side, right? You think about these things. What, what do I want to be doing when Jesus comes back? Do I want to be keeping up with the latest social media, not slamming social media totally, although I think it's an addiction for many. Do we believe that Jesus is the pearl of great price? You made me to know the path of life, Psalm 16 says. In your presence there's fullness of joy. Do we believe that? At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In one of the other gospel accounts, it says the desire for other things, which has just got your priorities wrong. So in Luke, the, the fruit does not mature. There's no useful fruit. In Matthew, it says it's unfruitful. In Mark, it says no grain is produced. And so the remedy, what's the remedy? We've got to deal with our idols as idols. That we treat things as objects of ultimate concern that should be of very little concern. Yes. And we should delight ourselves in Jesus. I've said that the problem of this heart is it's a distracted heart. What is the basis of distraction, though? Listen carefully. All distraction is based on attraction, right? I'm distracted from this because I'm attracted to this. And what I'm attracted to is all too often not worthy of my attraction, my time, my energy. And, and what we must do is overcome the attraction of the worthless by attraction for the worthy one, the Lord Jesus Christ, to see him in his beauty and his glory, to see him in his kingship, to see him as gentle, humble, lowly, caring, loving, Misplaced attraction, distraction, 
has got to be overcome by a greater attraction for Jesus and for viewing the distractions for what they are and aren't. And so I've got to honestly ask myself as I preach this to my heart and to yours, what is attractive to me? What governs my life? What do I daydream about? Fourthly, there's a good soil, a good heart. It's called a good and honest heart. It's a heart that holds fast to the Word. It's devoted to Jesus and His Word. And the outcome is it produces fruit. And interestingly, at the very end, it says, uh, and bear fruit with patience. And I thought, that is a really interesting phrase, fruit with patience. And, and, um, you know, you, you could go back to a farming analogy and say, well, you plant, it takes a while for it to grow, it takes patience. But I... I did a little digging into the Greek word uh, that has to do with patience. And, and what it has to do uh, with is uh, to stand in a place and not be moved. And I thought, oh, well, that fits the context pretty well, really. Because this good heart has chosen to stand in a place, the Lord Jesus Christ, and not be moved, not be distracted. Yeah, that fits. And, of course, the overall thing about all these is that the condition of your heart determines your response to the Word, whether we receive it and how long we give allegiance to it. So we must watch over our hearts, guard our hearts, keep our hearts, as some of the translations say, and plead with God for an open heart, a tender heart, a teachable heart. Keep your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. You're familiar maybe with soil testing. You know, the yard won't grow, or maybe I should say it grows the wrong stuff. Mine grows the wrong stuff really well. I mean, if, if, if grass would grow like weeds, you know, we'd all be gardener of the month. But anyway, so you, you're worried about your yard, and so you do a little soil testing, and you dig up, and you take some samples, you can send them off to Oregon State, and they come back and say, well, it's got too much of this and too little of that, and, and, and then here's what you do about it. So this, this passage is about heart testing. Not about soul testing, but about heart testing. Well, how do you test the heart? Well, pretty simple, pretty easy. You, you put before the heart the Bible whether it's preached like now or whether you read it at home alone, you put the Bible before the heart and you'll get a, an idea of what's in it. It's pretty easy in regard to the first heart and the fourth heart, but it's pretty murky in regard to two and three, right? It really is. We, you know, is, is this going to be somebody that fades away when persecution comes? Is this going to be somebody that lets uh, the thorns of life uh, choke out the word. Harder to see that. Four souls, four hearts, four responsive, two outcomes, heaven and hell. And Jesus draws crowds and he speaks to the crowds. He's not after just any follower. He wants faithful followers, those who will be faithful with patience. It's clear he wants us in that last category. And for that to happen, we must continually listen and pay attention and count the cost of persecution and endure it and count the cost of single-mindedness and pay it. We must see and have a growing apprehension of and desire for the beauty and value of Jesus and the good news about Him in the kingdom. 
and persevere, to endure with patience. What Jesus is calling for, friends, is a lifetime response, not just a one-time response. Fruit takes time. We must, as we say sometimes, play the long game. The long game. And we must ask ourselves in the light of when and where the context in which he did this, where am I in the crowd? Where am I in the crowd? Where are my family? Where are my friends? What would a little soul testing reveal about my heart? It's a good idea from time to time, you know. So, who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let's pray. Lord our God, it's an awesome passage. Probing passage. Will I let persecution cause me to fade away? Am I that committed to you? If the deceitful of riches and the cares of life and other distractions, Lord, are they choking the word in my life? Am I the good soil? Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that I and all in my, the sound of my voice that we're good soil. That we're going to stay the course. We're going to play the long game. We're going to resist the persecutions and resist the thorns and be faithful to you to the end. Grant us grace to that end, we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.